Hey, I'm Adam. I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 257, Heaven Can Wait, Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. We've spent some time this season on the podcast looking back on films celebrating major milestones, and this week I wanted to, to review a film celebrating 45 years since its premiere back in 1978. The movie is Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty, and we're going to get to the movie review shortly, but first, Derek... Hello, my friend. And what is new in the world of pop culture for you this week? Hello, Chris. Hi. Uh, well, I, I'm going to literally focus on new stuff, and I mean like really new stuff this week. So we're gonna we're gonna fulfill the uh, the teaser at the start. <laughs> Somebody's of the show got to. And it ain't I'm gonna here be to me. educate Chris. So Chris, <laughs> I'm gonna educate you. Yep. Uh, a couple of good ones. Couple okay ones. Okay. Um, first of all, uh, I want to before I jump into these movies that I had a chance to watch. Uh, we don't often. Uh, talk about other podcasts specifically. I mean, I, I mentioned that I listen to things on podcasts, but right. uh, I mentioned on last week's show that I watched the recent release, the movie Air, about the Michael Jordan signing with Nike, hence the Air title, like Air Jordan. Right, right. And huge cast. Uh, you said it was good. By, I really liked it, yeah, yeah. Directed by Ben Affleck and, and starring with tons of people. Uh, so as a promotion, so the movie actually was released in theaters a couple of months ago and it just dropped on Amazon for people who have an Amazon subscription at no extra charge just last week. So that's why I'm talking about it now because I'm a cheapskate and I didn't want to go to the movie theater. Anyway, when it did get released in the theater a couple of months back, there was the, the, the stars of the movie did a lot of press. And so I downloaded a podcast, which I didn't want to listen to until I had a chance to watch the movie. Since I watched the movie last week, I listened to the podcast this week. So it's uh, it's got both Matt Damon and Ben Affleck on the show together, mm-hmm. and uh, they're on uh, the Bill Simmons podcast. Uh, so it's a couple, you know, it's a couple months old now. But uh, apparently, when they were doing press, they were doing the press separately for most things, and so this was one of the only ones that they actually did together. So if you're a fan of either or both of those guys, it was an interesting opportunity uh, for them. Obviously, they talked about the movie, but they also just talk about their relationship and their history in Hollywood and things of like that. It was it was fun. It was like about an hour and a half, mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Simmons, uh, you know, he's pretty popular in the the podcasting in the sports world he's the 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 head of the ringer podcast network and uh so no if you if you're interested if you like the movie and you you like uh ben affleck and matt damon then um i I encourage you to find it it's just a straight up the bill simmons podcast and oh it's uh, not so it's not the rewatchables it's the bill no no no, it's the actual bill simmons podcast and 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 sorry what what actor did you say was in there oh it was ben affleck and matt damon matt damon okay just, there just you go. Okay. I was seeing if you were paying attention. I said his name a few times, so I'm glad you caught it. But yeah. but no, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. I finished listening to it yesterday. And so, uh, you know, if you're a fan of those guys, it was good. Uh, in any case, uh, moving right along, I had a chance to watch a few movies this week. So um, the most recent offering from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, was uh, released in theater a few months ago. It just came out on Blu-ray and DVD. So, of course, my copy showed up in the mail and I had to sit down for two hours and 10 minutes and give it another watch. And I really liked it. I liked it the first time through. I really wanted to give it another viewing and I liked it just as much a second time through. I know it got sort of middle of the road reviews, but I really like Paul Rudd and uh, I thought it looked great. People complain that, Oh, it looked too much like a computer game. All the backgrounds are computer generated. I'm like, I'm okay with that. I knew that's what I was signing up for. I liked it. I, I really enjoyed it. So, um, if you haven't had a chance to see the new Marvel movie, The Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumanium, it's available now on Disney+. Plus. I don't know if it's for free yet or if you got to pay for it, but uh, it's it's good. If you like the Marvel movies, like you, you, you get exactly what you expect. So two thumbs up from me, which should echo the review I gave it a couple of months back when I saw it in the theater. And that's with the actress from Lost, too, in it. Yes, Evangeline Lilly plays yeah. the Wasp. 
It also has uh, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer, and um, I'm, I'm blanking on some the, the the young girl who plays the daughter of Ant Man. I can't think of her name. I didn't recognize her from anything else, and um, I really enjoyed the movie. Um, I watched a stinker on Amazon. I was looking for something to watch a couple of nights ago, and I said, "Oh, what's some sci-fi movies?" And I was flicking through the things. Said, "Well, because you've watched this, we recommend." And I'm flicking through, and I saw this one. It's called Alien Code. It's from 2018. Stars nobody I recognized. Uh, no, that's not true. It um, the uh, uh, Mary McCormick, I think, is her name. She was in a couple of seasons of The West Wing, and she was oh, the she wife was the in one, the Howard she, Stern movie. Yeah, she was in the Howard Stern movie. Private yes, part. She, she played, played Howard Stern's wife. wife in the Howard yeah. Stern movie. Oh, yeah. um, I like she's, her. She's, awesome. she's got a small part, um, and uh, the the premise is it's this this younger guy, and he's like a cryptographer hacker, and uh, at the start of the movie. He basically uh, comes home from wherever he's been and he sees a dead body laying on the floor and there's a USB stick and there's an envelope that says play me. And as he plugs the USB stick in, he realizes it's him recording himself saying, you need to listen to what I have to say. And then when he looks closer at the body, the body's him. And so it's this sort of time travel alien weird thing. And it turns out that he's like, Hey, you're going to get hired by the government to decrypt this code, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to give too much away in case it is something you might want to watch. It started it's off not, really good. It's not. the first half an hour was really, really good. <laughs> and then it sort of two thirds of the way through, there was like a sort of a mini climax and it just sort of wasn't that great. But then I actually liked how the movie ended. So it sort of didn't, it looked like it was going to stumble, but it kind of stuck the landing at the end, but not in a really great way, just in an okay way. But uh, it was 90 minutes on Amazon. It cost me anything. So a hard time recommending this one unless you're like looking to your real hardcore sci-fi nerd. It's called Alien Code from 2018. And then the last one I saw, which I'm going to put this in the category of great movie, terrible title. Nope. From 2022, directed by Jordan Peele. Um, so I, I watched Get Out. I loved it. But uh, I know that the last couple of movies from Jordan Peele have been billed as horror films. I'm not a big horror guy, so, you know, haven't really gone out of my way to see them. And uh, this one, Nope, was on our PVR. My wife said, hey, we should watch this. And I was like, well, you've already seen it. She goes, no, it was really good. We should watch it together. And I said, are you sure? I'm not really into horror. She goes, it's not really a horror movie. So like, OK, I'll give it a chance. It was great. I really liked it. A plus, two thumbs up. The title is dumb. Like how... If I like the movie's called Nope, what do you think it's about? I have no idea what it's about. That <laughs> exactly. is the stupidest title in the, the world. The first thing I think of when you're when you say it to me, I'm like, Am I gonna watch this movie? Nope. That's exactly what I said. Where the <laughs> no, movie no, that's came low out. hanging fruit. He was like, I mean, You're gonna like, go no. see this? Nope, why would I? I have yeah. no idea what it's about. And uh so yeah. And you know me, I don't want to watch a trailer because they always give away so much. And after yeah. the movie, after we watch it, I literally went back and watched a trailer and I'm like, Well, I'm glad I didn't watch a trailer because it gave away a ton of stuff. But without watching the trailer, I literally had no idea what the movie was about. So uh, all I'll say is it was really good. If you uh, have seen anything else by Jordan Peele and you've even moderately enjoyed it, give this one a chance. Again, mm -hmm. it's sort of that spooky sci-fi. It's more sci-fi spooky than uh, than horror. Like, it's definitely not a horror movie. It's not a blood and gut slasher movie. Like, I didn't know what to expect. Um but the cast is great. The performances were great. The story was really clever. And uh, I thought the ending was was great. Like, that's always a big thing with me, right? If the ending sucks, it's like, uh, do I really want to recommend someone sit through 90 minutes to have a terrible ending? But no, this was it was really good. It It's two thumbs up. Definitely, if you haven't had a chance to see Nope, even though the title is the dumbest title in the world, it's worth the watch. Recently, is that all that you did? That's it. I just got those three in the podcast. Yep. I remember recently on the podcast here, you had done like it was almost sort of like a self-imposed thing that if you go over five minutes, I got to start clicking the clock. Should, like, do you want to go back to that kind of thing? Or is that just, yeah, I totally forgot. No, yeah. we'll okay. see. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. Just cause you, I, you, you're being that's to keep, there. that's to keep me in line. If I've got like nine things on the list, this mm. I only had the three things. So, we're good. okay. So on for me, Derek, we have a celebration around here. I am now the father of a 14 year old. Today was my oldest son's birthday. feeling old uh but it, you know what the thing is it got me thinking what's the difference between being a 14 year old in 2023 like my son is as opposed to being a 14 year old in 1984 me you know and because we do this podcast 
I wanted to focus on the differences from a pop culture perspective. What's the difference? Okay. Between them? Okay. So I, I think the biggest difference obviously has to do with technology. Because oh, that, no question. Now you can get anything you want, whenever you want. You want to watch a TV show? Done. Right? You just stream it. But back then, you want to watch a TV show? You wait till Tuesday night at 8.30 p.m. when it comes on. Like, And now, if you want to listen to a song, you click a button. But back then, if you wanted to listen to a song, you save your money, you go to the record store, you buy a record, you bring it home, you put it on a turnstile, and you listen to it. You know, and now or you know or you buy a blank tape, you wait patiently until the song comes on the radio and then yes. you record off the radio and hope the DJ doesn't speak into the music too much. Yeah, it, it depends on the song because if it's got a long intro. The DJ is going to like talk until he hits the post. Right. So yeah. over top of it. And the thing is, like now, too, if you want to watch a movie, you just stream it back then. If you want to watch a movie, you go to the theater and after two weeks, it's gone until it comes out on VHS, maybe in like three years. So, and the other thing too is like now, if you want to be a content creator, you make a video and you just put it on YouTube. You know, back then you, you had to be like hired by a talent scout or audition for a TV show. Like there was no independent content creation really. So I think with all the new technology and the ability to consume basically any and all, all pop culture that you want, whenever you want, I think you know, on the surface, it would seem that it's way better to be a teenager now, right? But, you know, yeah, well, I, yeah. I got thinking, I, I would argue that it was way better to be a teenager back then. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can certainly see the point of view from both sides of it. It really, I guess it depends on um, what, what your like what your nostalgia factor is, right? For us, we're older. We remember what it was like, but it's. I think it would be hard to put that into context for a young person today in any way that they would think it was better back then. But the thing is, if you have to wait for things, you develop patience. If you could only watch cartoons on Saturday morning, they become more special. That's true. I, I'll if, give you that for if sure. You can, if, you, if you can't access anything you want whenever you want, then you're also forced to be a little bit more social, you know, and interact and play with your friends more. And to top it all off, in my mind anyway, pop culture was way better back then. The movies, the TV shows, the music. And that, I'm telling you, my friend, is a hill that I am willing to die on. So, <laughs> as you know. And yeah, then we got definitely. This. All right. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, why did the pirate have to pay $2 to get his ears pierced? Uh... I have no idea. Because he's a buccaneer. Oh. <laughs> a buccaneer. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. I he's like a that buccaneer. One. Yeah. <laughs> Star Trek could always see into the future, couldn't they? What do you have that we can slap Star Trek logos onto? Shatner's hair. The toys that made us. The TJ Hooker hair. TJ Hooker. I could have auxiliary power back in a few minutes. Yeah, no, I I, I really like it. Con! I give you a quick scan to make sure you're okay. Kirk got around a little bit. Go. Do you need a tranquilizer? Oh my God. Okay, so this season, Derek and I have been going back and reliving movies that are celebrating major milestone anniversaries. And this time around, it was my turn to nominate a film. I went back to 1978 to review a film celebrating 45 years since it came out in theaters. And that was Heaven Can Wait. It was directed by... Produced by, written by, and starring Warren Beatty. And you know, it's easy to just to brush this movie off as a conceptual comedy that's just basically fluff. But it's not. It, 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 not in my mind, anyway. It's much more than that. And critics agreed. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Screenplay. It won the Oscar for Best Art Direction, it was a remake of a 1941 film, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which was based on a 1938 play called Heaven Can Wait. Um, the movie was made on a budget of $6 million. It took in almost $99 million worldwide. So, Derek, you had never seen this film. I had never seen this film. It was so, not even really on my radar no. until you flagged it. So that being said, you watch it for the first time. What was your first impression of it? So it's billed as a comedy, which mm -hmm. I think is a 
gross misstatement. I there agree is with you. No way this is a comedy. I, I didn't laugh once. I didn't chuckle once. I had a really hard time understanding how anyone can conceive of this movie as a comedy. To me, it was a, I'd call it more like a light drama. Um, I would, we'll come back to that because I've okay. got a couple of things later on that I want to kind of bring up okay. that, where I, that made me laugh that I, and I think if we, when we talk about them, you might realize like in context, I thought they were pretty funny, but, but I agree with you. It was, uh, it's, it's not a comedy. Right. Yeah. No, I think we'll, I don't think we'll have any disagreement on that. So you said point. light drama is what you kind of, I, I would call it more of a light drama, yeah. which is not to belittle the dramatic performances, but like when I think like a, a heavy, serious drama, it's like you think things like period pieces where people are like giving important dialogue and costumes and things like it's certainly nothing like that. But at the same time, you know, the performances for the most part were pretty good. You've mm-hmm. got pretty talented people in the lead roles. So, you know, again, not to be them and we'll come back to talk about them throughout it. Sure. So my relationship with this, this movie, this content I knew it was a remake of a remake of a remake. I had read a little bit about that. And it has actually since been remade a couple of times after this. And so my introduction to this story was with the Chris Rock version of this movie, which I believe was called Down to Earth, where it's a very similar premise, but it's obviously updated because it came out 20 years later. And uh, instead of the guy being a football player, uh, he was a stand-up comedian because that obviously works better with... uh, with Chris Rock's natural abilities. And the guy he jumps into was uh, the head of an insurance company, which I don't think that was the, the, the exact thing here, but again, similar enough. So as I'm watching this for the first time this week, it's sort of jogging my memory to the other movie. And so I'm constantly comparing it. It's almost like when you, you hear a song and it's a cover, but you don't know it's a cover. And then you go back and you hear the original and you go, I don't really like the original that much. People are like, are you kidding? The original is amazing. It's like, yeah, but, this is where my intro was, was with the cover song. And sort of that was a little bit my feeling with this. Not that I thought the Chris Rock movie was fantastic, but because I had seen that first, I really had a hard time getting into this one. And honestly, I just sort of thought it was middle of the road. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I didn't really feel there was enough here to make it a standout. But at the same time, there was enough. It had enough strength that I certainly wouldn't say I disliked it. So I'm I'm very much right in the middle on this mm-hmm. one, and and we can talk more about the specifics of it. If you like the Chris Rock version Down to Earth better than this movie, you and I have got some serious problems going forward. I got to tell you, um, because that just thing that thing just sucks. But you know, you mentioned about the um, the, the the performances, and and I think I think I just want to go back in time a little bit, shall we, Derek? It's something I like to do. As you know, mm-hmm. I want to take a look at some of the competition that this film had at the Oscars. Okay, that was the only thing I didn't do, so I'm glad you've got that yeah, in front of you. Pretty there. impressive company, actually. So if you take a look at Best Actor, the winner that year was John Voight for Coming Home. Rightly okay. so. But also nominated, Warren Beatty was nominated for this film. Gary Busey for the Buddy Holly story. Like, he basically made a career on that role. Like, so that was a good role. Mm-hmm. Robert De Niro for The Deer Hunter and Lawrence Olivier for The Boys from Brazil. There's a lot of solid actors that year, you know? And uh, as Best Supporting Actor, um, Jack Warden from Heaven Can Wait, uh, Max, he was nominated. Up against, Shocking. Shocking. Uh, we, we'll get back to that. He was pretty strong. Um, John Hurt in Midnight Express. Also up against Bruce Dern from Coming Home and Christopher Walken from The Deer Hunter who won that one. Yeah, he earned that one. Um, what else? We got the supporting role actress. Uh, winner was Maggie Smith from California Suite. And I mean, a lot of people nowadays know her from uh, Downton Abbey. But mm-hmm. uh, Diane Cannon from this film was nominated. She was also nominated up against Meryl Streep from The Deer Hunter. Um, and then what else? We got Best Director, The Deer Hunter. Michael Cimino won. The Deer Hunter basically won all the awards yeah, that year. Yeah, cleaned up. Um, but Heaven Can Wait was nominated. Warren Beatty co-directed with Buck Henry. And yep. what else? I guess Best Picture, you know, Deer Hunter won. But this was nominated also with Coming Home. And, Which and shocked me. And An Unmarried Woman. So it was obviously a, a bit of a critical darling. It was also a hit with audiences. Not a blockbuster by any stretch. But I mean, it finished fifth that year with $81.6 million domestically. Greece you know, just cleaned up, you know, we had $159 million. Animal House was second. Close Encounters of the Third Time was third. It came out late in the year, so it did take a lot more money in the next year. 
Every which way but loose was fourth, and heaven can wait. Just beat out Jaws, too, for the mm-hmm. number five spot. So it was a critical hit. It was, you know, a hit with, with audiences, but uh, but you didn't like it that much, eh? I, I didn't, and I I mean, I, I've been thinking about it since I saw it. Like, I just watched it yesterday, so i am sort of been thinking about it for, for a day now. Um, for me, I think part of it is that movies from the – that from that time, 1970s, were made different. The pacing was different. The style was different. The way sure. you shot the movie was different. Even I found the music was like the the choice of music was different. Like I actually found the music super annoying in this one. Um, I, I really didn't get why his character had the. I thought it was a clarinet, but when I read it up, it was a an alto sax. I think they said. Yeah. That just seemed like a weird quirk. And then to have the the sax music throughout the music throughout the movie, I just I didn't care for it, and I just found it really grinding um but uh yeah i, I don't what know I the just... score like the score you obviously didn't like it's interesting you say that because no. you dave grusen was the guy that did the score for this movie i thought he was fantastic as a as a as a as a guy that did score and he did uh, multiple movies in the 70s and 80s he also did like tootsie and my bodyguard and on golden pond and he has a real kind of recognizable style that's all his own. And I remember when we did My Bodyguard, you were the same thing. You were like, I don't like the score. The score, like, I did not in this movie. And so it's it, that Dave Grusin score obviously just doesn't doesn't catch with but you it, for whatever reason. It, it, but it also could just be a moment in time. The, mm-hmm. the, the style that was appropriate and popular or that that he made popular at that time might have struck well with audiences in the moment. 45 years going back, it, it does not, it doesn't appeal to me at all. Now, and the thing is, I don't know how I would necessarily change it. Like, I hate to be that guy that just says, well, I don't like it. Well, what mm. didn't you like about it? What would you do differently? Like, I like to provide some sort of constructive criticism. I don't know. Um, I mean, I, the movie, obviously, most movies need a score in some way, shape, or form. And if the idea of this one was supposed to be a comedy, then I think that it definitely needs something in it. Um, you know, I mean, you, you rely on those music cues to help drive the emotion of the scenes and things. Like, I get that. But I don't know. I think it was just the use of that alto sax that bugged me so much. And I just thought it was a stupid detail in the movie. I didn't care for it. I didn't really. Well, I think I, I it, was, it was a plot device because later on when Max isn't sure if it's him, when he starts playing that song on it. Then he realizes, oh my gosh, this is Joe Pendleton, right? But um, go back to the score for a second. Dave Grusin was nominated for an Oscar for this score. Um, Giorgio Moroder won Best Original Score that year for Midnight Express. Giorgio Moroder was another guy, very, very unique style. He did, um, um, uh, oh, it was, uh, it? Uh, Cat People, and he did um, American Gigolo. He, he had a very unique kind of style Giorgio Moroder did but Superman but John Williams was nominated didn't win like Superman should have won John Williams yeah. scored that oh so good but um so interesting that you mentioned like how it's 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 not really a comedy because it could have been a quirky comedy with a weird premise that just kind of falls flat like like yeah you know, like that like that stupid Chris Rock one that you liked but about. I don't I don't see Warren Beatty uh, again I don't know mm-hmm. a whole lot about him. I just I know a little bit about some of his movies, but he doesn't seem to me to be the kind of guy that would want to be in a movie that's just, you know, laughs a mile a minute laughs no, like he's no. he's a serious actor yeah. who is giving a serious performance. I mean, he was nominated for the Oscar for it and he's he was nominated, you know, numerous times after this. Like he's clearly a talented performer. Mm-hmm. I don't see that kind of performer wanting to do a laugh out loud, ha 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 kind of comedy. I, I, I see this and that's why I'm saying it was more. I see it as yeah. a light drama. It's, it's not, like, yeah, it's not a yeah. comedy. I agree with you. It's more of a drama. It's a drama with funny parts in it. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I I, I'll give you that. I didn't really find the part. Like there were certainly parts that I can understand people in an audience in a theater would laugh at. Like when the wife comes in and sees that he's still alive and she starts screaming and then, and, and then he puts his hand over him. Like mm-hmm. I can see why people would find that funny. I didn't, but in the moment, in a theater full of people, I can see how, as some people find that funny, the the laughter is contagious. But didn't care for it. Yeah, I don't know. I like I say, I thought it was, I agree. It's more of a drama with with a good story. And uh, but the thing is, a story like this takes takes one thing to pull it off, and that's really good casting and really good strong performances. And I think that it's got that. So let's just talk about the cast for a little bit, and we'll start with Warren Beatty, because. It's easy to think Warren Beatty was just this handsome guy 
that was known for dating just about every Hollywood actress alive in the 60s and 70s. I mean, he dated Goldie Hawn and Natalie Wood and Cher and Joan Collins and Britt Ackland, Madonna. Like, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. But if you think of him just for his sexual exploits, it, it kind of misses the fact that he probably had the most longevity of any actor in Hollywood history. Like, like he was involved in multiple aspects of filmmaking too. Like he did producing, writing, directing, acting. And the thing was, he did it all at a, at a high level of quality. I think Warren Beatty and Orson Welles are the only two people in history to be nominated for, for, for an Oscar for director, producer, writer, and actor for the same film. And guess what? Warren Beatty did it twice. Yeah, well, was obviously the either that's Citizen impressive. Kane. Yeah, Beatty did it here with Heaven Can Wait, and he did it again in '81 with Reds. Yeah, so he wasn't just like a pretty face, you know. He was an amazing filmmaker, and if you look back on his career, he started back in 1961 with Splendor in the Grass, and then into the '60s he did Bonnie and Clyde. The '70s it was like Shampoo and Heaven Can Wait. In the '80s he did Reds, a personal favorite of mine, Ishtar which you hated. <laughs> but in the nineties, so he did like Dick Tracy and Bullworth. And then just basically slowed right down. He got married at 54 years old, started a family. He's been married to Annette Bening ever since. And, but he's had this amazing career and this amazing personal life. He's like this Hollywood icon. And, and as far as this movie goes, it's just got his fingerprints all over it. It's, it's, but it's not just some vanity project. Like you might expect. I just think it's a really, really, really good movie. You obviously disagree, but. Yeah, I wouldn't nearly give it that many reallys. I thought it was okay, and I can understand why in the moment people enjoyed it. And I think that comes down to choice. We talked about it a few minutes ago about your kids. You know, the difference of being 14 years old now and then. Now, you have an abundance of choice. You can find things that appeal to your specific uh, uh, like what that appealed to you specifically? What do I like? What kind of genres? What kind of performers? And because there are so many choices, I can really narrow in on the kind of things I like. In 1978, you didn't have that kind of options. These are the movies that are playing. See them or don't see them. Those were your options, and they were very limited. So I can understand how some of these older movies, many, many people saw them, and they did very well financially, and it gave movies that, if they were to come out today, might not stand a chance against all the competition. It gave them a chance to find an audience. Not that I think this movie had that problem. With this kind of pedigree, I'm sure it was, people were lining up to see it when it came out. It obviously got really good reviews and people continue to go see it. And I know a lot of, we'll call them older people, because I was only four years old when this came out. Uh, people in my parents' generation, like they loved this movie. I remember hearing people talk about how this movie was great. So. Again, different different strokes for different folks, depending on the the time frame. But right. uh, just it, do, it doesn't do it for me. Oh, that's fine. Uh, so continuing with the cast, I want to talk about James Mason. He was Mr. Jordan. Mm -hmm. I always remember him best from this film, but he starred in over 100 films in his career. When you look at his IMDb, um, but he was pretty much always in a supporting role. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was in The Verdict with Paul Newman. I remember him as uh, Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But he did a lot of war movies, too. I think, like, The Desert Fox and The Boys from Brazil. But the thing for me about him is his voice. Yeah, I was going to say, that's what I remember oh, most man, about James Mason is the voice. fantastic voice he had, eh? And he brings this sort of godlike leadership vibe to this part. He was, like, the perfect person to play Mr. Jordan. He He's obviously this big wig in heaven in the role, and, and he handles everything that's, you know, that's going on. But and, and he he's almost kind of like a narrator for Warren Beatty as he walks him through kind of everything that's happening. I thought he was great in this movie. So uh, I I like James Mason, and I think that I would pay money to listen to him read the phone book. Like his voice is fantastic. I thought this was sort of a nothing part. I thought he was wasted. He to your point, he was more just the narrator. He was there to explain what was happening. They didn't really give him a lot to do. He didn't really have a lot of interaction that, in my opinion, required a lot of, you know, I hate to say it, required a lot of talent. I mean, obviously, everyone in the movie has a certain amount of talent there. They wouldn't have been there. But I just I, when I was done watching it, I was sort of thought, 
why did they cast such a well-known person in that role? You could have cast anybody. And then I read after that some of the people they wanted for that role and the kind of money they were throwing around. I thought, really? For that role? That just seemed ridiculous. So Probably because it was based on Here Comes Mr. Jordan. So that's kind of like a major character in it. So they wanted to go all out. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. It just, it seemed, it seemed like, uh, uh, it seemed odd to me. I, I, again, I, I like him. I had no problems watching him in that. I just felt it was a waste of his ability. Julie Christie, want to touch base on her. Now she did a lot of film roles before this stuff like Fahrenheit 451 and, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and shampoo also with Beatty again. Um, but she was probably most famous for doing as Laura in, uh, Dr. Zhivago. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't immediately recognize her. I had to look up her credits, and then when I started to look through, I'm like, "Oh, that's who that was." Again, in 1978, these performers were sort of at the peak of their powers, and 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 in many cases had established careers. Well, I didn't really start getting into movies until the mid to late 80s. So a lot of these people were way past their prime by the time I got into movies. So for me, I watched just a few of the people in this. I thought, I don't think I've ever seen this person in anything before. Uh, she was one of those, uh, I, you know, obviously I had seen Dr. Zhivago and I've seen some of her other movies, but uh, it, she didn't jump out at me. And honestly, again, I thought she was OK in the park, but she didn't in my mind, she didn't hit out of the park. And then it's like, hey, look, everyone's getting nominated for awards for this. I'm like, really? She might have been better. Did she get nominated for this? Uh, she did not. But she might have been best known for a while there in the 70s for being Warren Beatty's girlfriend. You know, oh, okay, and, and I think she got a little bit of hate from some people who thought she was only cast in this movie just because of, you know, them being romantically involved. But uh, I thought she was really good in, as Betty Logan. Obviously, you didn't. But uh, well, I didn't dislike her. I just mm -hmm. again, I thought it was like, yeah, it was it was OK. All right. So Jack Warden, who you said you didn't think deserved to be nominated for. An Oscar. How did this guy get nominated for an Oscar for this part? This again, it wasn't a meaty, juicy part. I didn't think that he really had a lot to work with and, and didn't really do anything spectacular. I, uh, I, I mean, I like the performer, but I'm like this again, I just, so many of the performance in this movie, I thought anyone could do this. Like they really no. just seemed like they were phoning it in. I thought, how oh, did they no, get such no. critical praise for such blah, blah work? Oh, no, he's, he brings like such, I don't know. He brings, oh, I don't know. He, he brings almost like, I want to say like a comedic edge to things, but I mean, he, I don't know. He, oh, he was good in this. And, uh, but I think the thing is that made me laugh when I was watching it this time was only in the 1970s could the personal trainer of a professional athlete look like Jack Warden. <laughs> yeah, know? no kidding. Like, but I thought he was fantastic. Oh my God. No, definitely. Oh fantastic is definitely not the right word. He was, he was acceptable in the role. He was, he was, I wouldn't even say so far as he was good in it. I'm like, he was okay. He was the best supporting actor. I, which I, I boggles my mind. Like, I always remember him from 12 Angry Men. He was fantastic in he that. He was good in that, too. Yeah. In this, not so much. I, I don't think he was bad. I just don't think he was great. But he was also in Shampoo with uh, I, I never saw Bane and Chrissy. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for that movie, too. Never and and the thing is, too, he's another one that had a great voice. Really recognizable. Yeah, you know, very distinct. I remember him mostly from there was like a string of B movies in the early '80s, stuff like Choo Choo and the in the Philly Flash, and So Fine and Carbon Copy, and then he did a TV show called Crazy Like a Fox. Ran from I remember when that was on, but I yeah. again I was pretty young, so I never yeah, watched it. Yeah, I never watched that either, so obviously. But for me, he was really memorable in All the President's Men too. I think I remember him best though from this film. He was, he was, he's been good. He's a, he had a good career. I thought so. Um, Diane Cannon, one thing about her, she was the first woman in Hollywood history to be nominated for Oscars, both in front of and behind the camera because she was nominated for best supporting actress for heaven can wait. She was also nominated for best supporting actress for Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice back in 69. And then she was nominated for best live action short film. In 1976, it was a film called Number One. She wrote and directed it. And sure. she was married to Cary Grant back in the late 60s. They had a daughter together. Um, the scenes, though, with her and Charles Grodin plotting to kill Leo Farnsworth, I thought they were really, really good. Uh, again, way too many reallys. I thought uh, uh, she was nominated for this, which, again, that shocks me even more than the Jack Warden uh, um, nomination. But I mean, in, in Hollywood history, there's often very 
few great parts for women, especially in the 70s. I got to imagine there weren't that many. So I think it was sort of the what's the best of what we've got. And in that case, she got in. And hey, she's, uh, you know, clearly look at her resume and she's worked forever. She's quite talented, but I did not think this was Oscar worthy. Not at all. Like, no, she was, again, okay. It was maybe a weak crop, you know, that year. Like, say, Maggie Smith won. And uh, Diane Cannon was nominated. Penelope Milford was uh, nominated for Coming Home. Maureen Stapleton for Interiors and Meryl Streep for The Deer Hunter. So it was kind of a, yeah. It was yeah, like she a, wasn't beating Meryl Streep. Like, I'm sorry. Like, uh, well, I don't have any problem Maggie with Smith winner, won. Yeah, I mean, so. Maggie Smith's a fantastic performer. So that, I, I, again, I haven't seen that performance, but that doesn't shock me that she won. I would have been shocked if Diane Cannon had beaten her or or uh, Meryl Streep. But. Well, like I say, her best scenes I thought were with Charles Grodin. And that oh, for sure. Like, the late great Charles Grodin, everything he was in, he made it better just by being in it. That's and, true. And he was always pretty much a supporting actor. I mean, he got to be the lead in those Beethoven movies, but I mean, let's be honest, the star there was like a dog. Yeah, he was cashing. He was cashing a check. Yeah. But uh, I mean, like we just talked about him when we reviewed the movie Dave with uh, yes. Kevin Klein there yes. a few weeks ago. Like, again, so small supporting part, but he just added so much. And, and in this, the same thing. It's like. Again, he was decent. He wasn't in it that much, but the scenes he were in were in, I think if you're going to call it a comedy, that's where the comedy would stem from is is the performance his performances and his interactions with Diane Cannon. I didn't find any other part of the movie even remotely humorous. Well, I I love Charles Grodin. I mean, some personal favorites of mine, he was Jim Harrison in Ishtar. Uh Ira Parks and seems like old times. And one of my all-time favorite Charles Grodin performances he played this part, Warren, in The Lonely Guy. Have you ever heard of was that? Was that with uh, John Candy? No. The Lonely Guy was Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Okay, I knew it was. And a- Carl Reiner directed it. The scenes with him and Steve Martin in that movie, where the, the two of them are just basically improvising dialogue, sitting on a park bench. God, it was so funny. Like, I don't know. That, that is one movie we should probably do on the show here sometime. That's a hidden gem from the 80s. I was going to say, we may have to try and find a copy of it. Oh it doesn't, my God, it's so doesn't sound like it's something that's just readily available on Netflix. But I think Charles Grodin's scenes here with Diane Cannon, like I, one thing I liked about him in this film was his ability to be kind of like mean and evil. He's trying to kill somebody. But he was also like scared, bumbling, and like humble to his boss all at the same time. Like, that's pretty impressive. I thought I thought he was a one of a kind actor. I, I like Charles Grodin a lot. So I, I find, uh, you know, I, I enjoy his performances. I find because he was always in those supporting roles, it just seems like he's the kind of guy that's good in small doses. And I think in this movie, they got him in there just enough. You know, it's it's like uh, bringing in a relief pitcher in baseball. It's like, we don't need you to pitch the whole game. We're just going to bring you in the middle of the eighth. You're going to do that. And then the ninth, and boom, you just got your few innings. You do your job and you do it well and you're you're out the door. And that's that was sort of how I felt about him in this. It's like he was only in a handful of scenes. He was good in those scenes. Um, and and then that was it. I think if we had, if he had had 10 more minutes of screen time, then uh, we probably would have been like, nah, I think the character was in it a little too much. But so I want to I, I know you hated this movie and that's fine. I want to give a special shout out to Buck Henry, if I could. The director? So, no, he yeah, he was the co-director. And he played the escort that pulled Joe out of his body right before the car crash. Right. Mainly a writer, you know, but he would always appear in stuff from time to time as an actor. I will always remember him from a couple of things. Number one, The Graduate. He was the hotel concierge at the hotel where Benjamin and Mrs. Robinson were starting their affair together. But mostly he was a staple on Saturday Night Live in the early days. So he used to do the the, the samurai sketches with John Belushi. So John Belushi was played a samurai warrior, for those that don't right. know, with a real samurai sword who would run all these like mundane American businesses, right? And Buck Henry was always the customer. And it worked so well because Belushi would speak with all this fake Japanese gibberish and Buck Henry would just respond to him as if he totally understood what he was saying, you know? And so there were these sketches that were like Samurai Delicatessen. That's Samurai the one I always Hotel. remember. Yeah. No, the Sam- deli. That's the one I always remember. Yeah, Samurai Taylor. And in one, it was Samurai Stockbroker. Buck Henry took a step a little bit too close to the counter. The blue she was standing behind. Like he, like Buck Henry missed his uh, strike mark on the Okay. Page. And Belushi swung the sword 
cut Buck Henry right across the forehead. Jeez. Live TV. And then when Chevy Chase did the weekend update, which came next, Chevy Chase just improvised and added the news that Buck Henry was cut in a sketch on the show. (laughs) And then Buck Henry came out for another sketch and he had a bandage on his forehead. And then soon every member in the cast was wearing a bandage as the net went on. So nice. But Buck Henry, I'm glad he was okay, but it was nice. It's it's interesting to hear that they were able to like turn what could have been, you know, a pretty serious incident into comedy gold. Well, and especially to to, really kind of reinforce the fact that, Hey, this is live. Anything can happen here, you know? Yeah. But uh, he was a big part of Saturday Night Live. So for, for that, I will always, always love Buck Henry. I, was, I always thought he was a really unique talent. But uh, like I say, uh, did you like him in this movie at least? Um, Probably not. I, I, again, he was hardly in it. Um, so I, I thought it could have been played by anybody. I didn't recognize him as anyone that I was familiar with. But again, the movie's from 1978. I didn't recognize most of the cast. So, you know, there was... Uh, I know that the original source material for this was a stage play, and I can see how a lot of these parts would have worked for a stage company where you've just got your your supporting actors mm-hmm. that come in and maybe play multiple roles. Like this to me seemed like you could have one of your just your standard players come out and do it. It's got a few lines here and there, and then you know he could be a background player in another scene. Like this didn't seem to me like it needed to be a big name in it. But obviously, as the co-director, he's going to be there. You might as well give him some work. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, again. He was fine. I didn't think he his work was outstanding, but I didn't think he was a problem in the role. Okay, so the plot is a little bit complicated, so it's worth breaking down, just in case anybody hasn't seen this movie in a while or not familiar with it. So you got Joe Pendleton. He's a quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. Out for a bike ride, goes into this dark tunnel. Truck comes the other way. We hear a crash. And next thing you know, we're up in heaven at the pearly gates. And Joe Pendleton obviously died in the crash and he's going to heaven and he thinks it's all a dream, but it turns out he's not supposed to be there. It's not his time to die yet because his escort, you know, played by Buck Henry, he pulls him out of his body just like a split second before, just so he, he wants to avoid him feeling pain, right? But it turns out like he's an athlete. He has amazing reflexes. He would have just like swerved and avoided it. So they got to find a replacement body for him to go back into. So they settle on this rich business tycoon who's been poisoned by his wife and his personal secretary. And Joe goes into this Leo Farnsworth's body. But then he tries to use his influence and power and money to make sort of positive changes. Um, So at this point, what do you think of the plot? Was it too much of a stretch or like were were you okay to roll with it? No, it was fine. Again, because I was familiar with the basic premise of it, um, I, I had no problem following it. I thought it was pretty straightforward. I thought they did a good job of explaining it. I I can see why maybe as an original concept in 1978, um, a general movie going audience might need to have their hand held a little bit because there's a lot of scenes where the what do they call them? The escort. They're basically angels, but mm-hmm. the, right. where the angels are explaining this is what's happening, blah, blah, blah. And I get it. And again, if it's a stage play originally, you sort of need that that setup because when you're in theater, you you really need to make sure the audience understands what's going on and you have limited resources to do that. Um, so, no, I, I thought that the script was pretty straightforward, pretty easy to follow. I I, I was fine with it. I liked it. I mean, I liked the premise a lot. Mm-hmm. I like how, how he, then, you know, he's like this businessman and he's trying to do the right thing. And, I, and, and how he mixes metaphors from sports and business and he kind of applies his leadership from football into business. Because at one point, he's like, we're here to go all the way. Let's go to the Super Bowl, guys. And when we get there, let's already have won. You know, he kind of fires everybody up. So that scene in the boardroom when he says that, this is where I thought that this movie was similar to the movie Dave. Yeah. That you had me watch a few weeks back. Like, now, you have not seen this movie. Heaven can wait until this week. Do you agree that there's similarities with Dave? Or is it just me? No, for sure. And I think that was one of the things you asked me, like, what did I like about Dave? And I said the idea that, uh, you know, a regular person put into a position where they can do the right thing actually chooses to do the right thing rather than just abuse the power that that they've been given. And I think that, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call Warren Beatty's original character an everyman. I mean, he's clearly a, a, a professional athlete who's on his way to winning a Super Bowl. So he's already a step above so many so many regular, quote, quote, regular people. 
to put him in the body of a millionaire, billionaire, however rich this guy's supposed to be, the head of a company where he can actually make these changes, it's good to see that, you know, they really they really paint it that he's, you know, he's a good guy with a good heart. He wants to do the right thing. And he's constantly questioning when they say, you know, like, uh, bad things have been happening. Like, he even says, like, how did we get there? Did we bribe someone? And they're like, you know, uh, uh, Groden's characters are like, oh, no, no, that's a joke. That's a joke. When it's clear that... You know, the guy he he has jumped into was clearly a bad guy who did a lot of bad things. And so this definitely uh, has that same parallel with Dave. And and a lot of movies lean on this trope and it because it works and audiences are the everyman. So they can see themselves in this position and sort of it it makes them question, what would I do? What would I do if tomorrow, uh, you know, my real life, I dropped dead and I had an opportunity to come back as a millionaire, billionaire, quadrillionaire? What would I do with all that money and power? Well, I'd like to think that I would do what what he did in this movie or what the guy did in Dave, but I don't know. And so it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting premise for a movie, and it really sort of makes you think about it. Like, what would you do? Where's where's your moral compass? Well, what he does obviously is buys the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, he's sort of a little good news, bad news, right? Mm-hmm. It's like he wants to help out, but it doesn't necessarily seem like he's helping out simply because it's the right thing to do. It's almost like it's partly because it's the right thing to do, but it's partly because he's trying to impress the girl. And then he does a very selfish thing where he spends millions of dollars to buy the football team so that he can potentially go out and play to be the quarterback, which that part of the story was completely ridiculous, especially when they're like, we're going to the Super Bowl in two weeks. Well, I'm just going to buy the team and walk on and be the it's like, I don't care how much money you have. That's just not happening. But. Anyway, suspend disbelief for purposes mm-hmm. of entertainment. And then obviously he's got to convince his, his old trainer, Max, that he's really Joe Pendleton, you mm-hmm. know, inside the body. And then, like you say, you know, he tries to train and go to the Super Bowl, but then he falls in love with Julie Christie, the environmental activist. But then the plot twists because he learns that this was only a temporary situation. Right? It was mm-hmm. never mm-hmm. Mr. Jordan's intent to let him stay there permanently. And then he gets shot and he falls in the well. And then at the Super Bowl, they put in Jarrett, the backup, who gets killed on the field after he gets like hit massively. And so Joe steps into his body and finishes the game. And and then, you know, but, but the thing is, he can't stay like that, right? Like Mr. Jordan has to wipe his memory clean and uh, he'll just be Jarrett for the rest of his life. So then him and Julie Christie just kind of, she sees like some familiarity in him and off they go, right? So that's kind of the end. So that's kind of the plot of the film. I, I thought it kind of worked, but was there any, you know, you didn't like the movie overall, but any scenes in particular that you thought were good? Um, I mean, nothing immediately jumps out that I can think of. It wasn't that I, like I said, I didn't dislike it, but I just didn't like it like it. It was, it was literally, it was okay. I, I don't necessarily think I need to see it again, but I am glad I watched it once. Uh, it is something that I might recommend to some people, but I would probably caution them by saying this was a this was a good movie that you may enjoy. But keep in mind, it came out in the 70s. So the pacing's a little different and you may find it a little slow. Um, so just give it give it a chance, because I think if this kind of thing was just put in front of a, a you know, let's say like a, a teenager, 15, 16, 17 years old, they're going to watch 15, 10, 15 minutes and be like, I'm out. I'm done. Too slow. Boring. Um but that's that's just indicative of the way movies were made in the, in the 70s. So so some scenes that I want to talk about the way station scene at the beginning, some of the cinematography when they get to the way station in the airplane, I thought it was quite good. I, I really like the shots of Warren Beatty and Buck Henry walking across the frame. They're basically, you know, walking on this cloud mm-hmm. and then, you know, they go to the airplane and then, of course, the airplane is a Concorde which at the time was like the, the most state-of-the-art airplane, you know, known to man, right? Which I thought was interesting. But the scenes with him and Max, I thought were great. Like when he's explaining how heaven works and he's like, you know, there's 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 an escort and a way station and they got to put you back in this body and there's probability and outcome and all that stuff. And Max is like, Mr. Farnsworth, I, I'm just a trainer. What you need is a, a really good doctor. Yeah, like, I thought there were some yeah. funny, funny lines there. And then um, when he finally convinces Max that it's him inside Farnsworth's body, so then Max is like all in. He believes it, right? And Joe's talking to Mr. Jordan, but Max can't see Mr. Jordan, can't hear him. So then Joe leaves the room, and then Max starts having a conversation in the corner, but Mr. Jordan disappears. So uh, 
you know, he's sitting there having a conversation and he's like, he comes back and he sees Max talking to this empty corner and he's like, hey, Max, don't go crazy on me. <laughs> Again, I thought all those scenes were pretty good. The other things I thought were, so you, you mentioned there wasn't a lot of comedy, but I felt that there was comedy in some of the scenes where he was like, when he first became Farnsworth and was getting dressed. And remember, he he's like that guy Sisk was dressing him. And then mm-hmm. he puts him in this polo outfit and he's like, do, do I play polo? Not really, sir. And then, yeah, that's what I, thought. I thought that was, that was pretty funny. And then um, he's like, why do I have so many of these sailor outfits? Well, sir, you've always fancied the sea. Uh, do I sail? Not really, sir. Not really. <laughs> like, yeah. So again, like, there were times where I, like, I chuckled. I thought it was quite funny. And then the other the scene, like to go back to what you said, when um, Charles Grodin and Diane Cannon, their interaction, some of that was funny. When Warren Beatty comes and knocks on the door and she's in bed with Charles Grodin and Charles Grodin gets up and hides behind the curtain and then she's like, okay, come in. And he's like, I want a divorce. And he just leaves. And then he knocks again. And then the guy, the Charles Grodin hides again and he's like, He's like, Abbott, Abbott, there's a trainer for the Rams I want you to, Max, call him and, and get him. Because he knew he was there the whole time, which I thought was funny. And then um, Charles Gordon is behind the curtain and he's like, yes, Mr. Farnsworth. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, okay, good night. And then she starts yelling at him. She's like, why did you answer him? I couldn't resist. His will was too strong. I don't know. <laughs> to me, I found that whole thing funny, funny. So I don't know. Like... I, don't, I mean, old? it was it was humorous. I didn't laugh out loud, haha. But mm. no, I, yeah, I, I, I chuckled. Oh man, I I don't know, man. You and I are complete opposite ends of the spectrum on this one, like because I thought it was I thought it was really really good, and like I said, I think it's more of a drama. It's almost like a like a fantasy romance drama and comedy kind of all rolled into one. I think there's a lot going on in this film, and that is not easy to pull off. But I think Warren Beatty manages to do it, and I thought he did it really well. If you ask me. You want to give it a rating out of 10? I, I'm give it a five out of 10. I figure it's sort of that halfway point. It's just enough to pass. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't really like it enough to give it more marks than it needed. So 50 yeah. is what you usually need to pass the course minimum that it sort of just passes the minimum for me. Man, like, you're, and, you and I are good. Well, man, we are at opposite ends. You're going to be shocked. I will give this a nine out of 10. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I thought it was that's, that good. It was so many no, things I, rolled into one. Oh, my God. Oh, and that's the way we are. Sometimes we agree and sometimes we don't agree. But at the end of the day, we always have fun with Caveman. All right, my man. It was my film. So it's over to you. So uh, what do you want to do for trivia? All right. We're uh, we're really going to switch gears on this one. Okay. This is this trivia. I'm going to call a, a treat for our, our good friend, Greg Martin. This one is going to be music trivia related to your movie. So. Originally, I was going to ask you questions about other movies that have the word heaven in the title. Okay. But there really weren't that many that I figured you would get. So I thought, you know what? We don't cover music nearly enough on this podcast. So I'm going to give you the artist and the year. And I want you to tell me the song title that that artist put out that has the word heaven in the title. So, for example, my first one, the nice, easy one is Led Zeppelin from 1971. What song did they put out that had the word heaven in the title? Uh, Stairway to Heaven. Exactly. Okay. Okay, It's as simple as that. I'm going to give you the name of the band, the year, and you tell me the song that that band put out that has heaven in the title. Easy peasy. Let's give it a go here. All right. (laughs) I might struggle with this one. There's a lot from the 80s that I think you'll get. Some of the newer ones, I tried to pick really big hits that at least I hope you had heard of. All right. Wham from 1986. Wham from 1986. I don't know. Song was called The Edge of Heaven. Edge of Heaven. Oh, I don't know. I I remember I was a metalhead back in in high school. Well, then we're going to go to 1984. Kiss. Oh, is that Heaven's on Fire? Yes. Yes. There you go. I watched the video. They don't have the makeup on for this one. I no, was like, oh, that might have been. unmasked. Yeah. All right. Uh, 1987, Belinda Carlisle. Oh, Heaven is a Place on Earth. Yes. Yeah. Nice. No, I remember that song. All right. Uh, here's another metal one for you. 1991, Guns N' Roses. 
Ooh, that would have been from Use Your Illusion. Knocking right. on Heaven's Door. There you go. Yeah. All right. This one might be a little past your expert area of expertise. We're going into the grunge era. 1995, Alice in Chains. Oh, I wasn't into that kind of stuff so i don't know all right it was called heaven beside you okay no never would have got it all right 1992 eric clapton oh uh tears from heaven close tears in heaven I'll tears in heaven it was yeah. a song the, the the acoustic yeah. song yeah yeah all right got a couple of uh new wave songs for you here i'm not sure how much you're into that 1983 a little band called fiction factory Fiction Factory. Jeez, oh, I don't know. All right, that one's called Feels Like Heaven. Okay. Here's another one, sort of in that same vein. 1989, The Pixies. Oh, I don't know. It's called Monkey Gone to Heaven. No, never would have got it. All right, let's move back to something you might actually know here. The Cure, 1987, huge hit. Was that Just Like Heaven? Yes, no. there we go. There we go. Mm -hmm. All right. Phil Collins. Solo Phil Collins from 1989. Ooh, Phil Collins from 89. I don't know. It was called Something Happened on the Way to Heaven. No, no. All right. Here's a newer one. You're probably not going to get. Big hit from Bruno Mars 2012. Oh, God. Bruno Mars? I have no idea. <laughs> Okay, it's called Locked Out of Heaven. Okay. It was a really big hit. I'll I thought you might get that. Yeah. All right, we'll go back to 1992, In Excess. Ooh, I know a few of their songs, but I don't know anyone that had heaven in the title, so I've yeah. got to say I don't know. Okay, it's called Heaven Sent. Okay. And then uh, this one I think is an easy one for you, I'm hoping. 1984, The Smiths. Oh, that was another new wave kind of thing uh, yep. with heaven in it. Don't know. It's called Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. No, no. And then we're going to end off the trivia with what I like to call the Canadian content portion of the quiz. I'm going to give you the names of three Canadian artists. Okay. And I want you to give me the, na the names of their songs. So the first one, a little newer, you may not get it. The Tea Party from 1999, song with the word heaven in the title. Oh, I remember the Tea Party. They were like kind of like a metal kind of. Yeah, sort of a grungy thing. metal. Yeah. yeah. This was I like one of their really big hits. Yeah, I didn't like them, so I don't know what it was. It's called Heaven Coming Down. Okay. Okay. Easy one. 1986 Lover Boy. Featured on a movie soundtrack. Was it Streets of Heaven? It was not. It was from the Top Gun soundtrack, if that helps you. The song was called Heaven in Your Eyes. Okay. All right. Last one. Brian Adams has two songs that qualify. The first one is from 1984. Oh, it's got to be just heaven. It is. It was yes. his song, right? That was a nice, easy one. And then he had another one from 1991 from his Waking Up the Neighbors album. Any idea? Oh. I know it's a little past your expertise. Jeez. I, no, but I remember some of those songs that he had on that album, but I can't think of one that had heaven in the title. So... <laughs> was called Thought I Died and Gone to Heaven. It sounds a little bit familiar, but I... I you might know it to hear yeah. it, but in any case, uh, I know some of those were probably a little tougher. They were a little outside of your uh, your, your area of expertise. Now, some of them but I've I, never heard of in my yeah, life. Yeah, but I feel so. that we, we need to give music a little more love. So since I couldn't get the movie titles, I thought this was the next best thing. And I know some of our listeners are more into music, so they probably scored better than you did. So in any case, hopefully that was fun. And right. uh, that was it for your trivia. No, that sounds good. So uh, what do you want to do next week? Anything going on in the news or anything like you want to bring into it? Or what do you want to do? So we've been doing anniversaries, major milestones of movies. Uh, we've been trying to do a few more topics. Um, we recently today uh, heard about the passing of Tina Turner, music icon in her own oh, yeah. right. 83 years old she died. I, I didn't realize she was ill. Apparently she was. Mm -hmm. uh, so R.I.P. Tina Turner. Her, um, her career is so interesting, you know, like if you think about her early career and then like any other performer might have just been done, you know, after yeah. all that crap that went on and she was just reborn and she had such a great like, you know, career after that with all the songs she had as a solo artist and what's love yeah. got to do with it and all that. And yeah. The ultimate girl power before girl power was a thing. Oh, yeah. So, no, good. so many good songs. God, so she was amazing. Uh, 
after saying we don't do enough music and after talking about Turner, Tina Turner, what I'd like to suggest for next week is let's go top to five her. Tina Turner songs. Is that what well, we're doing? I think we might uh, that maybe save that one for a little bit, but okay. I'm thinking we just, we, we go back to what we're good at and we do a movie review from the eighties. She was in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Oh, yeah. Why don't we pick up that and do a quick review of that one next week? Let's do it. I, I know s- you're not, a, I was going to say, I know you're not a big post-apocalyptic kind of no, no. goer, but this one was really good. I remember watching in the theater when it first came out. I've seen it a few times uh, more recently. I haven't seen it in a while. And of course, it's got the great soundtrack. Um, so I, if we can Didn't find she a, have a song it? in there too, we, we don't need yeah. another hero. Wasn't yeah, that the one? Great song. So, so this is going to interest you. So I, I've seen Mad Max. I think I saw it once, you know, and then okay. I've, I've seen the road warrior, maybe only once too. Um, and then you made me watch Mad Max. What was Fury it? Fury Road. Fury Road. That's a newer one for this podcast, but I've never seen Beyond Thunderdome. So here we go. Here's a chance for me to, to watch something a little bit different. Nice. Okay. So why don't we, t- it's from 1985, not celebrating a milestone, but no, nope, no, nope, you know, I, well, it's the Tina Turner of it. We'll, we'll give it a look tropical, and, uh, I guess yeah. it is, it is. And, and honestly, know. it's, it's one of those, I don't want to say guilty pleasure. Cause usually guilty pleasures are like something that no one agrees on, but I think a lot of people enjoy this movie. I really enjoy this movie, or at least I remember really enjoying it. I'd like to go back and give it another watch. We can, we can address the Mel Gibson of it when we get into it, mm-hmm. just like we did when we watched lethal weapon not too long ago. But I feel, uh, I feel like going into it, it's, it's kind of like a B movie in a way but yeah, I mean, that's a good, I don't good know. way to like it's a good way to describe just it. the way kind of I like my feel about it but I don't really know so this would be interesting yeah we'll watch that and uh and then we'll go from there that sounds good all right so we'll come, come back, back next, next week, time we'll watch Thunderdome yep. we will watch Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome to give uh to pay homage to Tina Turner the late great Tina the late Turner. great Tina Turner and so we will do that but until then this is Chris McBrien on behalf of myself and Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World the pop culture podcast for the generations thanks for listening to pop goes your world you can contact chris and derek at popgoesyourworld.com please take a minute and review the podcast on itunes or wherever you download and listen to the show